All right, welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. Tonight, we're going to be talking to Christy Donner, the Executive Director of the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. And I'm here tonight with Randy, Janelle, and Elizabeth. And before we get into that conversation tonight, we have some announcements, Janelle. These yes, are, we do. The first one is uh, I want to give a shout out to some new patrons. We have a Patreon page, and these are people who support us $5 a month. That's it. One of them is Bill Stauffer out of New Jersey. Woohoo! Joshua Hogue somewhere in Colorado. All right. And Jordan, how, I, I, I know you, but I don't know how to say your last name. Warnches. Is it Warnches? He does a theology on tap in Castle Rock, and he uses some of our curriculum. So yep. we're, we're kind of awesome. partners in this thing. So those guys, Bill, Josh, and Jordan, thank you guys. And if you want to support us, again, we don't make money doing this, by the way. This sort of just covers the cost of having something online. Because you got to pay the big man out of the interweb something. So go to brewtheology.org, go under the donate button, and then there's different ways to support us. Next, we have Wild Goose Festival. If you don't know what Wild Goose is... You you, should come. You kind of have to experience it. This is what they say. It's art, music, and story-driven transformational experience grounded in faith-inspired social justice. But there is an element of it being grown-up teen camp. Yeah. If we're being honest. We've got some... With silent sil- disco. Silent disco. Making out by the fire? I didn't catch anyone doing that. A lot of beer. A lot of fun. We'll have a booth. We'll have a podcast on the Goosecast stage, and we're going to do a demo of Brew Theology. One of the things which we're going to give you guys who are listening right now is a promo code only for you listening. It's all caps, Goosecast18. So if you go to wildgoosefestival.org, 25% off. That's That's pretty good. Goosecast18, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. And then next announcement before we get going is Theology Beer Camp. Which one? In August in Asheville, yeah. North Carolina. This is the 10th anniversary birthday celebration. Of so, homebrewed Christianity. So Trip Fuller is one of our partners in theological and beer nerdiness crime. <laughs> so we're going to help him with this event, and we're doing a pregame event. Woo! The day of 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., so we'll have coffee in the morning, and then we'll move to beer before we get to Theology Beer Camp that night. If you go, we just go to our website. We'll, we'll post a link there, and we'll have it on Facebook. Sure yeah. we will. So what are we going to talk about for <laughs> seven hours with these people, Janelle? Well, we're going to talk about our labels, which is one of the fun things that we do at Brew Theology every once in a while here in Denver. Just what's your story? Where do you come from? And talk about how those stories kind of uh, play out in our life now, in our journey of faith, and in how we build communities around us. And so then we'll talk a little bit about building community, what that means, how we do it well. Um, and then what, what, what are we going to end with? We, well, we, we have a lot in yeah. seven hours. I know. Like, it's really hard to describe yeah. it all. So you really have to come to It's going to be at, find a, at a brewery, Habitat, and which... Is awesome. Yeah, we were there, there last year. It was fantastic. And then we have another theology beer camp later in the year in right. Denver. So we won't have to travel there. Yeah. Thank God. North Carolina <laughs> is beautiful. All of a sudden, like we've become North Carolinans. I had never been my entire life until last year. And now I'm, I'm going again for this two times, twice in a month. Yeah. Okay. That's enough announcements. Anything else? I think that's it for now. Great. Okay. Christy. You got the floor now. So this is all, it's not all about you tonight, but it's all about what you do. Cause I think that a lot of what we do at Denver Brew Theology and with the whole Brew Theology Alliance is that we tackle a lot of interfaith and interreligious mm-hmm. uh, questions and topics and philosophies. This one, 
people would say, well, this isn't theological. I would say everything is theological. And especially uh, if your theology is worth its salt and is actually good for the world, we're talking about something that's extremely relevant. So I want to thank you for bringing the relevancy to theology tonight and your entire 20 years of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome, and let's just start with your background. And uh, this is—you don't have to get too vulnerable. We're not going to, you know, do the whole life story. But how did how did you get into this work and this whole process? And this—it's twenty years ago. A little over. A little over. Yeah. yeah. So thoughtlessly. What, so what was the, what was the, the catalyst, the people, the influences, and all that um, beforehand? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't plan to to be doing this for the last twenty years, but. Um, I had a friend of mine who was a state senator, and her name was Dorothy Rupert up in Boulder, and she was really frustrated that the entire tenure that she had been at the legislature, um, and this is in the late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s, and all that they were doing was taking money out of education to put into prison expansion and the growing, not just to build them, but just to operate them, right? Building them is actually the cheapest part of prison expansion. And so she just was calling people that she thought might care. I was an activist and organizer at the time. And I said, I'll, I'll, yeah, let's have coffee. I don't know anything about the legislative process. I don't know anything about mass incarceration per se. We were doing a lot more work just on prison conditions and conditions of confinement and human rights abuses in prison. So I really wasn't a policy person. Um, so anyways, I had coffee with Dorothy and my life took a left turn and I've just stayed on that trajectory for the last 20 plus years. Um, because I do think that it's one of the more pressing human rights, civil rights um, issues of our era, to be honest with you. And so, um, yeah, and it is a mountain to climb, I'll tell you that. So the other night you had mentioned to our community about 1985's Milky Bill. Mm-hmm. And just for the listeners out there, can you just describe what like what is that and how that was so important, and especially within the trajectory of your work and mm-hmm. how that's affected you? Sure. So, um, you know, we sort of call um, 1985 ground zero for when Colorado really started its uh, trajectory on on mass incarceration and really started to kind of buy into that get tough on crime um, concept that really sort of exploded, not just here in Colorado, but across the country. I mean, we, were, we didn't invent this, right? Um, and the Milky Bill was really what uh, was the catalyst for that. So it was a bill that was passed in 1985 in the legislature that doubled all felony sentences. So if you'd been um, charged with an offense that carried a maximum sentence of four years after the Milky Bill, it was up to eight years. And the thing that was, I think, a little bit um, distressing in hindsight when we went back and actually, because it was before we were really involved, so we went back and listed the hearings and things like that, and, and the lack of sophistication in the conversation about this. Um, the, um, you know, really, it, it really was driven sort of by this notion that people commit crime, they need to be deterred from it, so the way to deter people from committing crime is to make prisons awful and sentences long, and that somehow will magically deter people. Um, didn't take into consideration anything about how much it might cost, where would that money come from, is that really the best way to reduce crime? It really, really was an incredibly oversimplistic idea that we have good people in society, we have bad people in society, and the way good people have good lives is if bad people go away. And that was, and I'm not joking, you know, if we listened to it now, we would be appalled at, at, 
And, and I don't think people did it on purpose. I don't think people were trying to be, you know, engaging in one of the most destructive and disastrous social policies in the history of, of not just the United States, but humanity, probably. But that's what they embarked on, and they embarked on with a lot of rhetoric, not a lot of thought, not a lot of research, not a lot of consideration, not a lot of stakeholder input. It just was sort of, um, there's a lot of political pressure for people to not be soft on crime. It just is, and it is, uh, it is toxic to the debate. Um, and it's a vulnerability that every elected official has because it's potent from a community. You know, they, they know voters will have a reaction if people is labeled soft on crime. So part of that is on us, right? That we have to be more educated and more nuanced so that we're not, we're not prey to those kinds of rhetorical nonsense, 30 second political ads and things like that. But anyway, so Milky passed in 1985. By 1990, the prison population had doubled. By 2000, it had doubled again. And then we stayed on that trajectory until 2009, which was when we sort of peaked in our prison population. And we can talk more about kind of what helped to turn the the page a little bit on it. But that's really one bill, one bill. And then there was a series of others, but that's really what kick-started it. Yeah, that, that it's just, it's insane. I, I can remember 1985, so I, I was eight years old. But all throughout my childhood, I recall all the ads, the presidents being in it. So in our house and where we lived, we thought all that was great and wonderful. I mean, the it's amazing what propaganda can do. So I, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of curious at what point did people start waking up to the reality of, uh, we've we've not only have a, have a problem with like too many people in prisons, but like the money that's being spent and it's taken out of things like education, like you were talking about. When did people begin to wake up? I mean, were you you were on like the the beginning part of this? Mm-hmm. I know, yeah. Um, I would probably. I mean, there's sort of this evolution of the wokeness, right? Yeah. Um, I would say by the early 2000s, early to maybe mid 2000s. The first, uh, and I'll just mark it this way: the first real parole uh, reform legislative bill that we were able to get passed was in 2003. It was a tiny little parole reform bill, and it was coupled with a small drug sentencing reform bill for possession, just lowering possession offenses. And the only way that happened is because there was a legislative horse trading going on, and one of the legislators wanted those in the bucket in the horse trade. So it wasn't even that it stood on its own merits, right? It had to be horse traded in the early 2000s. So, um, but the cost has been an issue that has been um, um, probably the more influential to bring people to the table. And then I think there's just over time, I mean, every, there's not a person in America that probably thinks, well, I shouldn't say no one. There aren't very many people in America that actually think we're winning the war on drugs. Um, and that's been true for a really long time. And, and so on some levels, criminal justice policy is actually not in alignment with sort of general public attitudes around drugs, drug policy, recovery, how do we promote, um, you know, um, a better, a more health-based approach and treatment-centered approach to addiction rather than incarceration. So that's always been kind of out of step with, with the community, but the legislators, it just has its own momentum, and it's really, really, really hard to peel back that, the layers of that onion, even though it's not publicly supported. So, you know, that's, that's part of the challenge. So I wonder if it's okay if we can talk about the race card right Absolutely. now. Absolutely, it's not the race card. It's called race baiting it's, and racism. Yeah. Um, so and I, cocaine versus crack. I mean, mm-hmm. so is um, it's the same drug, but one's cheaper than the other. 
It was is there a different sentencing with crack versus cocaine? Because or I, I'm just I'm kind of curious how mm-hmm. how I don't I don't know. It teach us because I, I need to be educated. I've heard that. I just don't know if that's true. Yeah. So um, well, let's pop up to the federal level. So that's really where you see the big disparity. So you remember Len Bias, who was a famous basketball player. Yeah. Who collapsed and yeah. then they and died and then people that whatever the the coroner or the whoever was doing the testing would say they had he had he was using crack and so that became a really big deal. So to the point that you're saying is there's there's um, cocaine is it's the same drug uh, except there's one is one is a salt and one is a base because you add and crack is got one extra little molecule and that's it. So there's no real difference in in what that drug is. Um, the, the way of you of ingesting it and the modality of it is a, is a longer and more intense high with crack. Um, and he had a heart attack, right? So then it, it just became snowball. Oh, crack was, remember, we had crack babies and crack. People was killing, it was destroying. And and, it, and I want to talk about the propaganda about it, but then I want to talk about the reality of it, right? Because crack is not a good drug. <laughs> like and what impacts it was having and where we missed an incredible opportunity to actually do something tangible about um, the the increase in, in crack uh, usage because it was pretty devastating in a lot of ways. But what the feds did, again, very thoughtless uh, in my estimation, kind of debate around it, and they just said, um, we're going to increase the penalty and differentiate between powder cocaine and crack cocaine to the extent that it was 100 to 1 in weight because that's how the feds sentence. So you could have... Um, you know, 500 grams, for example, to reach a certain sentence in the federal system with crack, um, or five grams. I mean, 500 of powder cocaine for five grams of crack, same sentence. And so the crack cocaine was more, I, this is a thing, and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in this, but in sort of the epidemiology of all of this. But my understanding really was, is crack usage, people who used crack, Really, it was fairly consistent across ethnicities and races, but who got arrested for crack was disproportionately, exceptionally disproportionately people of color. So when you had that kind of disparity in the sentencing and then you had the disparity in the enforcement, it's sort of um, the the worst of all worlds. And you, and you saw this incredible uh, racial disparity. Now, on the federal level, they had sort of dialed that back. Um, but it's still substantially higher, even though all of the science debunks anything that this is somehow worse than powder, cocaine. On the state level, Colorado hasn't made that differentiation in weight um, between those two drugs. So they're treated the same in, in the state system, but the Fed system is crazy. And is it, this is naive on my part, but I remember the early 80s where a lot of white people were doing cocaine. Mm-hmm. Is that just because of that's who I hung out with, or is that really true that white people tend to do to do cocaine more than other ethnic people, and crack was more not associated with white people? Well, I think I, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in in that, um, Elizabeth. But the thing is, is my understanding is usage was pretty similar across, oh. right? Crack was more was less expensive. There was more sort of an elite. Um, aspect of it um, for or people of that had more money would for be cocaine. for cocaine, powder yeah. cocaine. Um, but the truth of the matter is, for white people, it was considered a club drug. It was a phase. It was this, that, and the other thing, right? And so people like did not get in. You know, college campuses weren't getting raided like your urban neighborhoods were. They didn't have the kind of enforcement that was happening. Otherwise, your friends would have been doing time like 
other folks were. Yeah, um, instead of the banker, of the I know that you got who's a, They're bankers and they're lawyers and they're really successful and productive people, I'm sure, right? There's, yeah, and there's probably guy. there's probably people that ran into trouble with it, but there's also people who are just not criminal and doing wonderful and amazing things for their family and their communities. And people who are subjected to that kind of hyper-enforcement, particularly when it's so clustered within communities of color, they don't have those opportunities. So those kind of consequences are um, pretty substantial. Yeah, not to mention like just the profiling too within certain communities. If you don't see policemen patrolling this neighborhood and others around, you know, it's so it's, I, I can't, I, I remember even talking to a friend and this is off off tangent here and he was riding dirty, so to speak. And mm-hmm. he had his, his suit on, his nice car and his hair was all combed and manicured. And he's like, I get pulled over. I'm not worried at all. I don't sweat. And I'm like, that's that's insane to me. I mean, like, I, and I know what he what he carries when he rides. So, um, but I that reality is so it's so lost on a middle upper class white man, especially. Yeah, and it's uh, it's pretty sickening. Yeah, no, people yeah. really should pay a lot more attention about it and ask harder questions, both of themselves and each other. Yeah, in the white community in particular around that. Um, because it's just too easy to say it's the race card or yeah. whatever. Um, right. And it's not. It's his life and death for a lot of people. I mean, um, two of our staff are young African-American men. And um, I've gotten pulled over in a car. I'll tell you, the sweaty hands, the palms, like you don't know how that's going to go. Um, and that's real. That's not just people making it up. And they're in suits too. Yeah. Right? They're in suits too. Yeah. So, um yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty outrageous. And it goes beyond just sort of the profiling and what we think about this neighborhood or that neighborhood. I think one of the most pernicious things, and we talk a lot about this at work, it's actually gone so deep that it's now ascribed to an identity so that we actually hold, an, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, an image of um, black men in particular, but not exclusively black men, as criminal. Right? We make enormous assumptions about who a young person is in a hoodie. Well, you, do you know what I mean? And so it's beyond just sort of the neighborhood. It's to the identity. And then, and then anyway, so. I can follow along of that line a bit. You mentioned the other night that we incarcerate a whole lot more of our population as a percentage than other countries. Mm-hmm. Do other countries have the same size of underclass? Is it not racially split? Why, why do we have so much more... Uh, and there's several questions that attach to that. Do they have less crime in other countries? Do they treat it differently? What's the difference between other countries and ours? Um, Randy, I'm not going to be able to answer all of that, but this is my this is my understanding. Right? Is um, it's it's not about less crime. Again, going. I remember I mentioned I was talking to that criminologist who was from England, and he was the one that really sort of helped me understand sort of these international comparisons between the U.S. and other, and particularly Western European nations. And he said, um, really, the big difference is not really about about crime levels. I mean, if you look at big city to big city and stuff like that. So really, in London, they're dealing with a lot of the same stuff that New York City is dealing with. The things that, that differentiate crime in America versus other countries is the lethality of crime in America. So you may have the same number of robberies, but you'll have in London than New York. But you're going to have fewer people in London who die in the commission of a robbery or what the lethality. So it's not just it's not that they're less violent. It's they're less lethal 
in their use of violence. So that was one thing he helped me understand. And I'm sure there's a million nuances in that, that I don't, I'm not qualified um, or competent to speak to, but I remember that really struck me. Um, the other thing that he said is that no, our sentences are significantly longer than most European countries. Um, and we just arrest a lot more people. You know, the curiosity to me isn't so much about class or whatever, because, you know, we often say, oh, look, poor people commit more crime, and we should probably have a deeper conversation about that, because if if we actually investigated white-collar crime, we might not have hold that opinion, but we don't. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we have a skewed sense of where the criminal activity is happening. We have a tendency to pay more attention to crime that's in, in lower income or more urban areas because it's more visible, right? Um, but there's a whole bunch of crime that's happening behind closed doors and in, in, in lawyers' we, offices and all that stuff. We wouldn't know anything about that in our country, would we? <laughs> but we None don't... of that's coming to light at the moment, is it? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Remember, nobody went to jail on yeah. on on all that all that uh, financial um, implosion of our and all of that. That was so. Anyway, I, I have I have less hope. So that's the two things he said. It's really the just sheer volume of people that get arrested and get in, funneled into the criminal justice system. They stay there for much. Our periods of probation are longer. Sentences are longer. All of those kinds of well, and confinement our, our are longer. Our court system is bogged down pretty severely um i i went in and did some uh prison ministry a long time ago and we would go to a holding prison that was like pre before they went to the judge mm -hmm. they were only supposed to be there i think six weeks some of them had been there 18 months mm -hmm. and there was there was nothing they could do and the court was not moving them through the sentencing phase and a lot of those were just drug crimes. They weren't um, violent crimes necessarily. Yeah, I, would, I would be. I I wouldn't necessarily see say that I would attribute that to is one of the sort of causal things with this. I mean, we have speedy trial, and we have mm -hmm. certain you know defendants have certain rights and all that kind of stuff unless they're waived. Um, but we have a lot of people that end up in jail before they are. Um, prosecuted who can't simply can simply not afford to make bond right and so there's a huge debate right now in this country because around the use of money is uh, for bonding and stuff like that that's where you see a lot of class and race bias um, because y you and I could commit the same crime but you have money and I don't which means you get out of jail and I don't and a lot of people are questioning because there's no research that indicates that money bonding actually imp improves people's or increases the likelihood that they'll return but they lose everything they lose their job they can lose their homes because like what you were saying janelle it can take months right. at least to get through that process so in the meantime not only is your life destabilized your family your kids you can lose your apartment you know all those things yeah. so to back up a second you mentioned the number of people we arrest do we catch more people than the other countries do or do we do they have another way of dealing with it than an arrest um, I, I, and it could, I mean, the thing that'd be really interesting to me is to, to, they don't arrest people at the same level, particularly for drug offenses, because they actually have universal health care in a lot of these countries. And so maybe there's, and I don't know this, whether this is true or not, that there's better access to treatment or they just don't deal with it as a criminal matter like we do. I mean, the overwhelming majority of drug cases that are like in the 75 to 85% range of all drug cases that are filed in Colorado are for drug possession only. 
So this isn't possession with intent to distribute. This is just we fight the drug war at the lowest level, at that possession level. And it is a felony to possess any drug other than marijuana, um, you know, cocaine, methamphetamines, heroin, you know, all those kinds of things. So I think that's just we, nobody does the drug war like we do. I mean, Portugal is essentially decriminalized. Um, possession. There are other nations that are, you know, that they just have a stronger access to healthcare and treatment. So maybe that. But we also consume more drugs than any of our our consumption of drugs is higher than other nations as well. I mean, we just consume a disproportionate amount of all the stuff in the world, from energy to, you know, it seems like it's just like we are like voracious in our consumption of all sorts of things. You also mentioned that our crime is more lethal. Mm-hmm. Is that just number of guns or violent culture? Probably both. Yeah. I mean, there's a norm here in America around um, guns and gun violence that I think other nations are would be appalled and 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 are appalled at. I mean, I, I they they just. I remember when I was in Norway, because we have family in Norway. And they were like, how are people not in the streets every day demanding change, demanding real solutions? You know, and we just sort of say, you know, our thoughts and prayers and and um, wring our hands. And um, so there's there's got to be something about us that we just, it's normalized for us in a way that we don't have as much of a shock value to it. It kind of applies to... You mentioned the drug thing. I just read recently that opioids are available over the counter in most countries, but there's not the problem with opioid addiction and and crime that we have. We seem to be addicted to opioids more than other countries. Well, we have a pharmaceutical in- industry that's pushing pills out like crazy. We have a medical, you know, um, where there is a there's sort of a built-in. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever had, you know, had surgery recently or any kind of uh, chronic pain or anything like that. But but the the level of prescription, I mean, of of prescription drugs, the the prescription size itself is often usually pretty big, and so then there's this whole problem. I mean, most of the kids that are getting into opiates, as far as I'm aware of, are getting them from your, their parents and grandparents' medicine cabinets, because it's the extra pills that stay in the bottom bottom of the. The, you know, the prescription bottle that sticks in the back of the medicine cabinet, you've forgotten about it because your leg doesn't hurt anymore or whatever, your back's better. So, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a, a lot of that that happens. I do think there is something about America that's very interesting in terms of, of, um, of, it, uh, of our use of drugs. Um, and, and, um, and I don't know what necessarily, because I don't know enough about other cultures and other communities. Um, but it does seem like there is something that, that that is a little bit baked into the American culture, too. But the opiate stuff has been largely, I mean, that's, that's not just people sitting around saying, yeah, I mean, that's been flooded and pushed and um, in ways that we haven't seen with other drugs. I mean, I, I'd be surprised if we don't start to see some opiate manufacturers and pharmaceuticals that don't end up getting criminally prosecuted for pill mills and all of these kinds of things that you're seeing. It's huge money. You know, it's huge money, whether the the distributor is somebody in a white coat or somebody who's not in a white coat. It's huge money. So the, um, 
intent to sell or just the possession, the difference there. So to criminalize or decriminalize, like I understand that it doesn't mean like, Oh, anything, anything goes like that's, Mm -hmm. but you're, you're, you seem to be a fan of decriminalization of, of drugs. And that doesn't mean that people can just go out and do whatever they want with them. So can you talk about just the pros and the cons? I mean, clearly you've done your research on this. Mm -hmm. What, can you talk about both sides of that? If, if, if our country did decide to do that? Um, I think, and what I'm a big fan of is us actually having a conversation about it because I think it's really complex. And I think it should be okay to talk about it. So I think that's what we're trying to promote isn't so much, oh, we, this is, here's the 10 point plan and let's roll it out because it's, it, that's actually pretty, pretty complicated. But I think we need to be, it needs to be okay. The stigma around talking about it, probably, if it was less, that would be really helpful. So this is how I personally think about it. And I'm, this is beyond CCGRC's, just sort of our, our agenda. This is just me having thought about it and, and, and seeing this. It really kind of depends on what we prioritize. Because a lot, if we, if we care about um, interrupting the cartels, and the damage. I grew up in in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is right on the border of El, with El Paso. It's a sister city to Juarez, right? So I, I I grew up in a border environment, right? And if we if we are honest with ourselves in terms of what the impact of the drug war has been in other nations, um, and the destabilization and the corruption that's brought particularly into Mexico, um, and other you know Latin American countries, then we absolutely should be putting decriminalization on the table, right? Because we don't talk about that as a consequence because it's not a consequence here, but it is a consequence. It is destabilizing democracies, mm-hmm. right? Because of the money, right? So if we want to take the money out of the drug war, then the only way to do that is to decriminalize. There's no way you can continue with a black market model and take the money out of it, right? So if we care about that, and we care about the violence associated with the drug trade. I mean, I don't, I don't know what keeps you all up at night, but and there's a lot of things that keep me up at night, particularly right now. But one of the things that we don't, that I, and I hope, I hope I'm wrong, right? But I keep thinking that the first dirty bomb in America is going to be funded with drug money from 17 people in either a basement somewhere or a cave somewhere. Because that's how much money there is right, in the trade, and you're not going to be able to, to interdict that, right? That's the level of vulnerability we have with having this amount, and I don't even know what the, the international total would be of the, of the drug trade. I don't know if we're, I don't even know how many billions we're probably talking about that's unaccounted for in the hands of people we probably don't want that money in the hands of who are corrupting and buy. So if you just look at that lens, we are insane to not be having a conversation called decriminalization and to, and to really attack this drug, this drug trade and the drug war that way. From the user perspective, because that's where people always get hooked on, is they say, well, what about users? They could die. This is sending the wrong message to kids. And I think then it gets a little bit more complicated. I, I, do, I don't see from the, the Amendment 64 experiment, and we're kind of still in the early phases of that, right, the decriminalization of marijuana, but we have not seen a huge, as far as I, from the research I've seen, and I'm not as expert on marijuana because I don't, you know, I just, I hate everything to do with marijuana and marijuana policy. Um, that's a personal side. That's not a, that's not a CCJRC position. Um, we have not seen this huge intake, you know, uptick 
in use. We a lot of the the reefer madness that was around, like oh, kids on the street, you're not gonna, nobody's gonna graduate from high school because they're all gonna be too busy, you know, smoking, smoking weed and all that kind of stuff. And that hasn't really borne itself out. I mean, just ask yourself if heroin was illegal today, you're not using it. If heroin was was legal tomorrow, would you use it? The answer is no over here. Right. <laughs> right. No. A heroin like like Wonder Woman? You mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, heroin. <laughs> right. There is kind of a built-in deterrent to it because these 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 are. Um, I mean, the bottom line is that it's a very small percentage of of the American population that's actually in, involved in in these kinds of drugs. Anyway, so I'm not trying to minimize that it's not um, an issue, but if we could actually have a greater access to healthcare, treatment on demand and all those kinds of things, then uh, to me, then I think we could, t- we, harm reduction strategies are really important, which really is, is an alternative to the abstinence-based model of thinking about it. So harm reduction says that people are going to, and it, it, harm reduction is just a, an approach that encompasses, seatbelts are harm reduction, right? Helmets are harm reduction, right? So it's to say that there are behaviors that human beings engage in that could be dangerous. How do we, how do we reduce the harm of that? And there's all sorts of strategies within the harm reduction philosophy and approach um, to address uh, problem substance use and, and things like that. So it, it wouldn't necessarily be better. I don't think there would be fewer people, but that's kind of not the point. To me, there is a much bigger purpose, which is international <laughs> um, democracy, you know, the ability to have democracy across the globe and not have this much money in the hands of people who are um, the less people you want to have access to billions of dollars. I think part of the reason that we can't have the conversation in America is because so many of us were raised to believe that drug addiction is a personal failure on people's part. It's a sin. It's a personal failure and that good people would never become addicted to anything. And it's, if you view that, if you think of that as what drug addiction is, we can't talk about it because it's always the bad people are addicts. The one thing that's changed, at least in my mind, is now we're seeing the opioid addiction in middle-aged housewives who have mm-hmm. knee surgery and then they become addicted. And maybe the tide is turning that we can finally say there is something in the chemical balance of the brain that is so changed by drugs that it's not a person personal you know, it's not a failing on anyone's part. It's a, it's the way the human brain works with drugs. To me, that's one of the biggest ways to change how we think of drugs and whether they should be legal or not. Well, there's a couple of things um, that that triggers for me. One is, is certainly to counterbalance this idea that drug addiction is, is a moral failing and stuff like that. Really, the two pathways for me that I've experienced in seeing with other people is there's really two major reasons people are, are well, let me go to three. Um, physical pain, right? People are in physical pain and can't access um, the medical care that they need. Trauma, right? Uh, untreated trauma. Um, and just sort of recreation gone bad, right? Where you think you're in control and all of a sudden you're not when you're talking about drugs that are highly addictive. So that's one thing. The other thing that I'll say, so in terms of that, and, and to the extent that the faith communities should really be pushing back on this idea and not propagating this thing about sin, because cha- thank you, because chances are most of the people that hold that 
uh, feeling are going up to a, 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 a have a, a beer or a gin and tonic or a whiskey while they're holding that view. Or so, five pounds of chocolate or... <laughs> well, you know, it's just, again, it's what we think of as, uh, well, my drug's good, you're, you know, but your drugs are bad. So that kind of level of hypocrisy and that we don't have, I mean, alcohol by far and away, I know this is brutheology, but I'm going to just go there. Um, alcohol is the drug by far that has like more negative consequences in people's lives than the larger society's lives when you just look at the sheer number. And yet right? it's legal. It's legal. And, and it's-, it's more damaging in my mind than marijuana. Sure. Um, and, and so, but again, it's what we think of is, uh, of, uh, where we draw those lines about it. So I think that, you know, to the extent that we can move away from that judgment without knowing, and that's not just in this case, it's probably in a lot of cases that, um, and, and particularly in communities of faith and people of faith really to, to just check, we have to check ourselves when we're doing more judging than we are understanding or learning, then maybe we're outside of our lane. Do you think that's something that um, is deeply woven into the American narrative? Just this sense of morality that maybe is, um, it plays out through individuals and being taught these things, but just this sense of uh, the Protestant ethic and kind of the heritage of pilgrims and all, like we're better than this. We're moral. We're right. I mean, and I, it's, it seems like to me that becomes a huge barrier to what you were saying earlier of just not even being able to have the conversation because the conversation itself carries with it this taint mm-hmm. of being sinful or immoral mm-hmm. or allowing people to sin or, I mean, how do we, do, do you see that? Do you observe that? And then how do we like work to... I don't know, infiltrate those conversations and try to break some of that down so we can talk about the real issues of like the lack of mental health after trauma and, you know, addiction and Mm -hmm. what it is and what it isn't. I, I just, for me, I feel like those things are so intertwined and I just wonder if, if you've seen that bear out in the work that you do. I mean, that's complicated because I know I'm not, I don't, I don't think about this work from sort of that, that, um, religious or, or theological perspective. I'm not sure it would be the Protestant work ethic. I mean, there's, there's challenges for us and all of that as, as we all kind of work ourselves to death. Um, uh, again, going back to my friends in Norway, they're like, you guys work to, no, my, no, this is no joke. So, uh, my family, cause we're about the same age. And, and when he was in high school, um, his last year of high school, he did over in, in Las Cruces with us. So he could sort of have that American uh-huh. experience. Yeah. Right. And so we've stayed in touch over the years and he was visiting me here in Colorado a couple of years ago. And, and I was talking to him because we're now like, he's a dad, he's been through his you know, compulsory military service, like we're just older adults, he's got kids, all that kind of stuff. And sort of like, Jan, what's your life like now? And all, you know, like, what do you worry about? And all that kind of stuff. And he said, American, he said, what I realize is you guys in America work harder for less than anyone else, any other nation I've ever ex- been exposed to, right? And he's done a lot of traveling. Right. So that was one of the things that takes me down that Protestant work ethic Mm -hmm. sort of um, rabbit hole. I don't know if it's more the puritanical side. That's where I would probably land if Mm -hmm. I had to guess. Um, 
in sort of some of that rigidity around what's sin and what's and, and it's interesting to me that it's it's generally around all things around the body mm-hmm. right yep and how do we you know um how do we control our bodies or ignore like or ignore, ignore them. you know whether it's drugs it's sex it's all you know like yep. there's lots of things that we don't talk about um so i completely agree i mean we're going to get off on a theological tangent here if we're not careful. And that might be okay because we're having a conversation. But I mean, you, you, can, you can blame, you know, this uh, Neoplatonic, uh, Greco-Roman sort of, you can, you can blame Alexander the Great. He's the guy that caused us in the Western world. So if we're going to blame anybody, it's it's Alexander. If we're going right. to go back. Now let's... As let's, long as it's not Hamilton. Let, not Hamilton, no. So can we go back to your work, your organization, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, you're passionate about, but you're like, that's you keep you keep saying like that's not CC to JR. CC have a lot of yeah, a lot of I know it's a lot. CC Jersey. Yeah, that's not your agenda. What if someone someone were to just come across your website, Facebook page, and they're like, oh, this seems like a pretty cool organization. How like what's your thirty second to five minute spiel on what you guys do and what you do well. Well, I think the 30 seconds or the the umbrella, I mean, our mission is around ending the overuse of the criminal justice system as a whole. We relegate way too many issues and problems, quote, quote, problems, and expect that the criminal and push it sort of into a criminal justice context. There's drugs is just one of them. Mental illness is just another truancy. Go down the list. You know, anything that we've identified as a problem, people want to create a crime around it. Right. So that's part of this beast. Right. That it just keeps growing and growing and growing. So our, our focus is around reducing the overuse of the criminal justice system as a whole. But the other piece, because we're community-based, we're a deep, com, deep, com, deeply community-based organization, is how do we promote health and safety in the communities, right? And how do we advance that? And so a lot of our work hopes to braid those two twin aims. Because for a lot of years, we were the no more prisons people. And it was pretty simple. We could say, you know, we, you, mass incarceration, too many people, blah, 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 reduce. We hate private prisons, you know, all those kinds of things. But now we're much more um, um, dimensional, I think, and in, in the issue of real problems and real solutions. Because we can talk about mass incarceration and you can reduce the numbers and you can pass bills and you can do all of that stuff. But the truth of that, which we've done, right? We've done, we're really, really good at legislative advocacy. We write our own stuff. We know how to lobby. You know, we know how to, how to um, navigate that process. Um, and engage others in that process that we're really good at. And so you can bring the numbers down, but the truth of the matter is we've done that um, in some smaller measure, but nothing is better in the communities that we work and serve in, right? And in some, and by many metrics, you could actually say that they're worse because when you don't solve problems, they have a tendency to metastasize and they get worse, right? So now we're moving back in, into a space that's really, well, how do you build um, healthier communities, safer communities, and, and, and to put those two things together. Because I think for too long, we've jeopardized the health of communities in the pursuit of the, quote, safety in the community, right? And I think of health broadly, not just sort of uh, physical health, right? The health and well-being. Um, everything from, you know, whether or not uh, we've made a dent in terms of the people who are in need of substance abuse or mental health treatment, can they get it? But also, now how many children do you have that have been impacted by the incarceration of a parent and they're now really destabilized in their life and in and, and both of those? Um, so in the last couple of years, we and, and CCGRC is actually pioneering something um, 
that we're really excited about. And it's, it's sort of a transforming safety. We call it transforming safety. And the whole point for us is, is to think about how do we think about criminal justice and, and, and cause we use the phrase criminal, criminal justice system and public safety sort of interchangeably as if there wasn't space in between. If the, and, and there's really a, fairly substantial difference. The criminal justice system does what it does. It can have a public safety impact. And a lot of times it doesn't. I mean, it's done nothing in terms of reducing drugs, drug use, um, lethal violence. I mean, like, well, that's not true because lethal crime has gone down. Lethal violence has gone down substantially. Although a lot of the research is that it wasn't about um, decarcer. It wasn't about incarceration, increasing the number of people in prison or arresting more people out of it. So what we've been focusing on is, well, how do you really do that? And so, and how do you invest in it? Because oftentimes these are the communities that, um, you know, people say, oh, we don't invest enough in low-income communities. And I flip that upside down. I say, oh, yeah, we do. We have incredible, enormous public investment in, in low-income communities. We just do it in the terms of, in, in, in the, the lens of corp, courts, cops, and cages. It's an enormous amount of, of money that we're investing in these communities. So it's not like, oh, they're, they're starved, right? No, they're not. They're actually on some levels. It's just that we're, we're using that money in the wrong way. So identifying strategies and initiatives and, and pilots that we've been working on really in three areas. For, so one is reentry. So for people coming out of a prison and jail, um, uh, very high cycle rates of failure, right? And sort of that revolving door aspect, see if we can build some infrastructure in the community that helps people returning back to the community so that they can be, be um, successful and stabilized and move on in their lives. Um, and so that's a really big piece of the work we do. We're starting to do a lot more work in the, in the area around cr of crime victims because um, we often think that um, there are things that we could be doing to, to better serve um, victims, um, they can end up with a lot of challenges within the mental health and substance abuse issue as well. Um, and we just don't really have enough in the community that's really supporting people. It's again relegated a lot to criminal justice agencies. Um, but you have a lot of crime that's not reported, or so they can't ask access those sort of criminal justice, you know, in law enforcement or DA's offices or whatever. And I'm not disparaging the work that they do. It's just gap, 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 gap. Um, we're going to be focusing a new initiative um, specifically on men, um, one of the hardest to serve, um, highest, uh, higher actual victimization rates than, than uh, women, particularly uh, men of color. Um, but there's almost no conversation and no infrastructure around how do you provide victim services for men because they don't like to think of themselves as a victim, even though they can be very um, impacted by those experiences. Um, and so really excited about that, um, moving into that space that feels pretty innovative. And then also around people of color who are also largely underserved. Um, the other thing that we do is around Take Care Health Matters is our big campaign around health, better access to health care. The Affordable Care Act is a game changer for our people. We always say that, um, particularly because Colorado is a Medicaid expansion state. So the number of people that are now better able to access health care and behavioral health services through Medicaid um, is really, I, I, I can't even tell you what a game changer it is for folks that are justice involved. Um, also, victims. Uh, a lot of victims were uninsured as well. And so that's really great. Um, and we do a lot of civic engagement, a lot, a lot of civic engagement, just getting out, getting people to register to vote, getting people active and engaged. 
Um, you know, we're having DA forums. Uh, district attorneys are the most powerful people really in the criminal justice system. They're elected officials, but most voters know nothing about them. Uh, they don't necessarily know how to vote. People just sort of fall into the RD, you know, what, what party do you vote for instead of what person do you vote for? And we have no idea what they do after they've been elected. And so we're trying to increase transparency and accountability um, and engagement with prosecutors um, better. But but some of the initiatives that I was talking about when that transforming safety, I just calculated it up the other day. With those three initiatives, um, which is they were all created through legislation, it's going to be bringing over $50 million into communities that are most impacted by both crime and criminal justice involvement to sort of pioneer other strategies. So these crime prevention initiatives, we wait too long. We wait. There are a million probably interventions, and particularly if you think about young people, right? where we miss this opportunity because there's nothing in the community. Where does the parent go when they're struggling with their kid? Um, and uh, schools that are struggling because they're teachers, they're, they're not social workers, you know, and they're being asked to do things they don't know how to do. So we miss all of these earlier stages where we could intervene with much less cost, much less um, effort. Um, and so we're trying to move some of this work, A, into the community. It's our responsibility. We're the front line. Um, in public safety, um, in our own communities, in our own families, in our own neighborhoods. And I don't mean neighborhood watch. That's not, that's like the 20th century version. This is actually like being proactive in terms of how can a community respond, whether it's our faith communities, our schools, our families, our nonprofits, um, and really engage people in that and resource them. You know, this idea that philanthropy is going to solve these problems is also a 20th century thought. Um, these, this is worth public investment because it actually does help to promote health and safety. So those are the things that's probably not the 30 second or the five minute um, because what we do is kind of complicated. Um, but that's how we kind of try to braid it all together. <laughs>